Love it or hate it, regulation is one of the most common activities federal agencies undertake. Rulemaking itself, though, is among the most rule-bound processes, both to keep it under control and to ensure everyone's voice is taken into account. Now a study, under the auspices of the National Academy of Public Administration, has offered ways the regulatory process can become more agile. Here with what they are and what agile rulemaking actually is, we turn to NAPA fellow Michael Fitzpatrick. Mr. Fitzpatrick, good to have you on. Thanks. It's good to talk with you, Tom, about this important subject. And we should qualify you a little bit. You have worked in two administrations for the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIRA. So this is something kind of near and dear to your heart. That's right. I've spent six uh, proud and busy years helping to coordinate regulatory policy in the OMB and then have spent uh, over a decade since in private sector dealing with regulations from the other side. So I can bring both of those perspectives to the conversation. And let's begin with the definition of terms. The study by NAPA and we'll get into a little bit of how the study was developed, but what is agile rulemaking? Or how's it, what's the vision for agile rulemaking relative to the way it's done now? Sure, Tom. Well, as we get started, let me just say that all of my thoughts and opinions on our conversation here are mine alone and not those of my current employer at Google. But my employer is very concerned with agile regulation, as are many companies. Uh, and agile regulation is I think an evolution of a concept that in past years has been called better regulation or smarter regulation. And it it builds upon those concepts, which is how can regulators carry out their important duties and obligations to protect the public in ways that also balance against maintaining economic growth and job creation and innovation. And this is really the central challenge for regulators is to strike that balance on complex, evolving issues. And agile regulation is a set of concepts and practices that we hope will allow regulators to become more nimble, more flexible, more innovative in their own regulatory designs and processes so that they can deal with what is becoming a more and more complex world that's coming at them faster and faster. So then it's important to underscore then that this study looks not just at the process of creating regulations, which itself has issues, but also with the resulting regulations and how effective they are. Absolutely. In regulation, which as you rightfully noted at the top, is really the principal means by which the federal government makes policy on a daily, monthly, and yearly basis. As we see, Congress can be episodic at best in passing policies, but regulations come every day. And there are two fundamental components to making regulation. One is the process by which the agency engages with itself, with other members of the federal family, so White House offices and other federal agencies, and most importantly, with the public. And by the public, I mean everybody, regulated entities and businesses, but academia and civil society, individual citizens, they all have to be part of the process. And so you have important process functions that need to be carried out under law, under the Administrative Procedures Act and the various executive orders. And then you've got, what's the design of the regulation itself? What is this process yielding? What's the substantive form of the rules that are being written? And both of those important components can be involved by agile tenants or practices. And before we get into the tenants, tell us how the study was done, who was involved, and how long it took. Sure. It took uh, almost a year. It was a combination of 
staff, very informed and expert staff at NAPA, the National Academy of Public Administration, but also an expert advisory group on which I was proud to sit that included other experts from government, from academia, and from the private sector, all of whom have extensive experience with the regulatory system, but also who are really dedicated as um, affiliates of NAPA to trying to earnestly provide recommendations and new designs and suggestions on how to make the system work as best it can. We're speaking with Michael Fitzpatrick. He's Director of Global Strategy and Innovation at Google and a fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. And let's get into some of the top tenets. There are nine of them. Uh, What do you feel people should know first about what constitutes agile rulemaking? So, Tom, The nine tenants are spread through four categories. One is the public need, understanding what the public needs with respect to regulatory protections. The second is regulatory design, which we've just discussed, which is one of the significant components of regulatory policy. The third is internal processes, which again is that process of making the regulation and engaging with the public. And then the fourth is continuous learning. Let me highlight a few at the front end here. First, let me take a quick step back and say the world is becoming more complex, as we all know. We've got global pandemics. We have wars. We have supply chain disruptions because we have a thoroughly integrated global economy. We have climate change that we are grappling with. And in particular for regulators, we have the challenge of rapidly evolving and disruptive, and I mean that in all the senses of of the word, not just the negative sense of the word, just impactful technology that is shaping society in many good ways, but also presenting challenges and what we in the regulatory business call negative externalities or risks and costs to society. And for regulators, this is a huge challenge because these technologies and this technology development is, is, as we've said, rapid and impactful It can be inscrutable, inscrutable, and complex technically. And regulators face a real challenge in trying to both understand the technologies themselves, but also importantly, the impacts on society, good and bad, and then how to design solutions that are still going to be relevant and appropriate in 5, 10, and 15 years when that technology will have evolved and when its relationship with society will have evolved. So I wanted to get that out there as one of the fundamental reasons why we think it's so important that regulators consider some of these agile tenants. And getting to that one about public need, understanding changing external conditions and evolving societal, economic, and environmental needs, that means that agility should also look at when regulations can be retired, for example. It seems like every other administration looks for retirement and sunsetting. And in fact, I think even the Obama administration on the Democratic side also had a gambit to reduce regulations that were no longer applicable or were obsolete. And it seems like agility would build that into the agency process without needing an executive order every four or eight years. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you've you've identified one of the two I was going to speak about. I was also going to speak about the regulatory toolkit, which I'll do in just a moment. But that's actually relevant to the fourth category, which is continuous learning. And by that, we mean regulators should be working and designing processes to allow them to observe how their policy is playing out in the real world 
and also how the technology is continuing to evolve and engage with society. At the front end, continuous learning can be incorporated in flexible modes of regulation like pilot projects and waivers, for instance, with automated transportation, where you're allowing controlled experiments to occur in certain places around the country before you regulate across the entire sweep of society. But it can also play a critical role at the back end once regulations are developed and are in effect to continuously observe and learn from how they are actually interacting with society. Much of the work we do in designing regulations, and this is what OIRA managed for the White House under all presidents since Ronald Reagan, is ex ante or before the fact analysis of how we think the regulation will act in the real world. It's informed, it's empirical, but it's still a guess. The way you really know how a regulation is engaging with the world is 5, 10, 15, and 20 years after the fact. And so we believe, and, and many presidents have tried to develop policies to encourage agencies to look back or retrospectively review regulations already on the books to assess, are they doing better than we expected? Are they doing worse than we expected? Is it a mixed bag? And should this regulation be retired? Should it be modified? Or should it be strengthened? All of those are possible answers. Now, let me just make a put a footnote in here for the challenges of this. And you are right. In the Obama administration, and I worked on this with, with Cass Sunstein while at the White House, we did engage in a retrospective review process that was pretty robust. Every president has had some variation on it over the last 30 years. It's a big challenge for regulators for agencies to do in a consistent, sustained way across the full corpus or body of regulations. And that's because of resources and time. It is expensive and time consuming to go back and look at lots of regulations and really assess how they're doing. And then, of course, to sure. engage in the new rulemaking that's necessary to adjust that. So I just want to point out that if folks want agencies to really engage in this in a consistent and robust way, Congress is going to have to step up and provide the resources necessary. It always comes around to that, too. And just for a moment, I want to talk about the process of rulemaking, because that has been kind of on the back burner, but steadily boiling away, if you will, for some time now. And that is to automate some of the assessment of comments that are submitted by the tens or thousands or millions that are identical, this kind of thing, and also right. just putting more automation and more machine learning in a way that doesn't distort the intended outcome, but also speeds up the whole process for the agency. Is that part of the agility picture here? Absolutely. In our agility tenants that go to internal process, we talk about making workflow more visible by using plain language and regular transparent updates to the public about regulatory plans and constructing small internal but inclusive teams that can collaborate. But one of the things we do focus on as well is regulators themselves harnessing this new technology that I've been speaking about to make the regulatory process more inclusive, more transparent, more responsive, and more efficient. So you can imagine, first of all, that harnessing the internet you can open up the process and make it accessible to individual citizens and small businesses and nonprofits because they can now engage with agencies online. 
They can get access to vast amounts of information about past re regulations that are already on the books, but also about regulations that are under development. They can engage with the agency virtually with one-on-one -on -one meetings or to attend public hearings. So the transaction costs of engagement are lowered and the opportunities are raised using technology. In addition, as you noted, good regulation relies on good data, empiricism. And the process is intended to actually, it was sort of the original crowdsourcing mechanism the Administrative Procedures Act passed in 1946. It said, put your proposal out to the world and solicit feedback from anyone and everyone, assess it, respond to it, and then produce your final work product, which by the way, you're gonna have to defend in court. So this is a serious exercise. Using AI and machine learning techniques, agencies are going to be able to ingest that vast amount of public input to bundle it and categorize it and organize it in ways that will allow both themselves to use it more usefully, but allow the public to access it in more useful ways. And let me mention one other uh, concept, and that is for regulations that are already on the books, imagine if you will, if there were AI and ML based tools that would allow a small business person, for instance, or an entrepreneurial who was interested in expanding their business or getting into a new line of work or introducing a new product or technology, they could access the federal body of regulations through this mechanism on say regulations.gov and describe the activity or the product that they were going to engage in or introduce and have the machine learning aggregate all of the rules and regulations that might be relevant to them that they need to consider in engaging with that. That could be extremely cost-effective and useful for entrepreneurs and small sure. businesses. And one hopes right. that over time, GSA will get the resources to institute these kinds of tools. We are speaking with Michael Fitzpatrick, Director of Global Strategy and Innovation at Google and a fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. And that aggregation could also help agencies understand what they can retire and trim back and so forth by the same token. I think that's right. I think AI and machine learning tools always, of course, sort of being supervised in some way by the human beings that they're meant to assist could absolutely carry out data aggregation, data crunching, and data assessment projects that would allow agencies to better assess the impact of their regulations. And do you think this agile approach can exist coincident with societal debate about federal regulation? There was a Supreme Court ruling that was controversial and will be debated for a long time yet about how much agencies can interpret what is in the written law as passed by Congress. And we're not going to resolve that one today, but it seems like that's an issue that somehow needs to be inculcated into the federal workforce so that it can regulate effectively, but yet within the law. Yes, I mean, I think the, the West Virginia decision deals with a complex and controversial concept of statutory interpretation and delegation of authorities from Congress to the regulators. But so I'm not sure how much impact it has on the ability for agile regulation tenants to take hold. But I do think that, and regulators know this, in order for the regulatory state, if you will, in order for regulations to continue to demonstrate their efficacy, their effectiveness, in order for 
there to be opportunities to continue to regulate in ways that protect the public, but, but also don't hinder innovation and economic growth, they are going to need to adapt to this very new world and are going to need to adapt their processes and their thinking so that they can grow and mature along with it. And I think that has impacts on the ultimate sort of um, uh, validity and power and agency that they have to continue to, to, to make policies. So the better the regulatory state does its job in protecting the public as it's been commanded to do by Congress through statute in ways that are flexible and nimble and future-proof and that can evolve so that they don't unnecessarily hinder job growth and economic growth and innovation. That is the sweet spot for regulators to continue to do their jobs effectively and for and to have this, the mandate to do so. Yes, and for this agile future, then it sounds like there are some technical investments that need to be made, some legal statutory work that needs to be done, and some workforce development. Absolutely. And we come back to the question of resources once again, which is, if you want regulators to test, 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 if you want them to look back at their regulations, if you want them to hire technical experts in-house who give them the capacity to really understand these new technologies and to build smart policies around them, if you want them to be able to obtain the technologies that um, are necessary in order to do the things we just talked about, the AI and ML-based technologies to make the regulatory process run better, that all takes money. And so it's got to be a partnership between the executive branch and the legislative branch to make that happen. Michael Fitzpatrick is Director of Global Strategy and Innovation at Google and a fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure, Tom. Always happy to get up and talk about regulation. We'll post this interview and a link to that regulation report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. 
he um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, uh, you know, really it was Delbert Visor, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company, Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. 
And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.